Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival on this pleasant evening when it is not raining, but it will be by the end now I've said that. Uh, my name's Paul Johnson. I'm an Edinburgh novelist, and this is an event in the fine fiction strand. Let me just tell you what's going to happen over the next hour. I'll introduce our authors. They will present, read, do a dance, whatever they want to do. After that, I'll attempt to nail them down with complex and penetrating questions and probably fail, as usual. And after that, you'll have the opportunity to do the same thing. We have a roving mic. Just stick your hand up. It'll come to you. Keep it close to your mouth. Uh, and keep the questions short and succinct, please. There'll be a signing afterwards in the main bookshop. I'll remind you of that uh, as we finish. And finally, mobile telephones. Kindly turn them off, including people on the platform. Otherwise, they will be sold. <laughs> and the proceeds donated to the Authors Benevolent Fund. Our authors, on my far right, is Alan Bissett, who was born in Falkirk in 1975 and was recently named Falkirk Personality of the Year. <laughs> He's regretting that particular <laughs> distinction now. Uh, his first novel, Boy Racers, was based on his adolescent experiences there and was published when he was still a student. He's a former English teacher and has also lectured in creative writing at the universities of Leeds and Glasgow. He's now a full-time novelist and playwright. According to the Herald, Alan Bissett is one of the new wave of Scots talent and was also voted the 46th hottest man in Scotland by the Daily Record. <laughs> Something else which he regrets. He's here to talk about uh, his third novel, Death of a Ladies' Man. Uh, according to the blurb on my proof copy, which may not have made it through to the final edition, it's a vital read for anyone who wants to understand why men are dicks. <laughs> on my immediate right is Ewan Morrison, who lives in Glasgow. He writes a weekly column in Scotland on Sunday called Ouija Board. He's worked as a writer and director in TV and film for 10 years. He's the author of The Last Book You Read, which is a collection of short stories, and the acclaimed novels Swung and Distance, about which the latter of which, about which the, the Times wrote. On this form, Morrison is one of the finest novelists around. He to talk about, he's here to talk about his third, his new novel. Sorry, I'm going too fast, I'm going to stop now. He's here to talk about his new novel, Ménage, which was described in The Scotsman as an excellent piece of work from a clearly gifted writer. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Alan Bissett and Ewan Morrison. A lengthy process involving a coin uh, was carried out beforehand and Alan lost. He's going first. Hello. Uh, Paul said in the introduction that we could uh, read, talk or dance. I'm tempted. <laughs> I saw a piece in the fringe, it's at St. Stephen's, the arches at St. Stephen's, it's called Trilogy, it's great. It's a kind of big feminist piece, about two and a half hours long, and at one point, 40 naked women come on and dance in a celebration of female form, reclaiming it from the sexist male gaze and turning it into a vessel of joy. And uh, I don't think we can do that tonight, you mean? <laughs> We've only got books. Uh, yeah, Death of a Ladies' Man. Um, hard one, this, to write. Came out sideways. Um, so I'm glad it's published now and people can uh, enjoy it. Enjoy, in inverted commas, I think, a little bit. Um, because the character isn't one of the good guys. You must at all costs distinguish yourself from every other male in the room. Animals use visual stimuli to attract a mate 
frills, colors, elaborate patterns, and so forth. Sometimes they are blue, sometimes they are, say, yellow. You too should stand out from the crowd. Be a unique, startling creature. Make them laugh. Prepare funny anecdotes, and so forth. Be the center of attention. This theory is called peacocking. Be a peacock. Women will look at you from across the room, fascinated, wondering, who are you? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> D Shit. Julie fussed with her skirt, pulled and hitched, quick as a phone box change. Would better go she said, lowered herself from her position against the bookshelves and took her marking, instantly vocational. Charlie felt cold shivered. Okay, he said, quick, before the wee bastards break out their cages again. They looked at each other. He narrowed his eyes. Hers smiled slyly. Something pulsed in the space between them, and he felt it begin again, felt the air melt again. But just as she leaned forwards to kiss him, just as she inclined her head and touched his mouth with hers, and he closed his eyes, and she raised her hand to his hair again, the doorknob rattled. Gavin! What am I going to do? No, 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 no! I need to hide. No, no. Hurry. The key shook in the lock. She shooed Charlie behind the door. Move, move. Then opened it, smooth as a hostess welcoming guests. He heard corridor noise bloom and Gavin's voice surprised say, Oh, Julie, I didn't think anyone was in here. The door was locked. Sorry, must have shut behind me, Julie said, and her voice pinged. Professional. You looking for Animal Farm? Yeah. Set text time again. Woo! Books shifted. Julie grunted. Cheers, said Gavin. There's more at the back there, I think. These. It's okay, Julie. I'll get them. No! It's fine. I'm closer. Charlie heard her walk into the depths of the book cupboard, and Gavin came in after her. He squeezed behind the door so tightly he felt tubular. There. Thanks. Books were being passed. An international resolution, it seemed, was being passed. Come on, come on. So, Julie, what is it you're starting with the third years? Um, of mice and men. Uh, I just popped in here to pick them up. Oh, said Gavin. And the sound hovered like a soap bubble. That's in my room. Is it? Yeah. I told you that this morning. I said, if you want of mice and men, just pop into my room and pick it up. Did you? So, so why did you come here to get them? Uh, I, I must have forgotten. Let me guess. You didn't want to come round to my room. What? No, of course not, Gavin. I, I forgot, that's all. Julie, we can't let this be awkward. We still have to work together. Well, Gavin, it's kind of chats like this in book cupboards that make it a wee bit awkward. 
There was silence for a few seconds. Get rid of him, get rid of him, get rid of him. Charlie's mind drummed like fingers on a desk. This really isn't the time to negotiate the terms of your breakup. Then something occurred to him. Sat there in the front of his psyche like some grimacing imp of the perverse. He wondered if she'd motioned to Gavin. Charlie's here. Behind the door. He suddenly felt convinced that some game was being played here at his expense, which Julie and Gavin had rehearsed beforehand. The feeling was so strong and unexpected, he nearly pushed the door from in front of himself just to see what they'd do. Ha! I'm on to the two of you! But then he heard Gavin say, OK, good, so you know where the books are. And Julie Trill, right, thanks. And a few words were exchanged about some kid who was playing up in the third year. And Julie and Gavin chatted out the many tribulations of Darren Clark in the third year. And Charlie's mind reeled, reeled, and he wasn't breathing. Eventually, Gavin said, OK, send it to me. We'll sort them out once and for all, before he was gone into corridor noise and Julie shut the door. <sighs> that was close. <laughs> it's not funny, Charlie. No, I know. Julie started pacing up and down the book cupboard, a general whose troops had just been decimated. Do you think he wondered why the door was locked? Nah, Charlie said, doing his tie. I mean, why would the door be locked? Why would I be in here myself with the door locked? Did you gesture to me, Julie? What? Did you point to me? It went quiet for a wee second. Did you tell him I was behind this door? Charlie, why on earth would I do that? Forget it. She folded her arms across her marking, stood on tiptoe and kissed him primly on the nose. Young man, we need to be more careful. They kissed on the mouth, like a tackle. Not at school, Mr. Bain, okay? Yes, Miss Carell. She left. Adolescent chatter in the hall, laughter, catcalls, spats. Charlie adjusted his suit, went into the noise and colour of the corridor, the cackling masses and swaggering school bags. He strode. It was the Colossus of Rhodes. He strode past Gavin's room. Gavin stood. Gavin looked at him as he passed. Their eyes met like those of rival salesmen chasing a buck. His glance snapped from Gavin's like a business card. A first year went, morning, Mr. Bain, dragging itself to class like a nuclear mutant. Oh, uh, morning. He was already thinking through the lesson, Shakespeare. Mind dancing, Shakespeare. Wondering how he was going to make Shakespeare interesting. His snappy title was Montague v. Capulet, the grudge. Kids were in the class, and Charlie's entrance struck a note through waves of noise. Bobbing boys settled, turned, started to take things out from their bags. Grenades, guns, deodorants. He still couldn't think of any jokes. The one about the crack-addicted hamster that it mugged for, for punchline. Perhaps he should teach them something. He could always fall back on that. <laughs> the class swarmed and moved as one, a shore of them, and he was Canute, keeping them at bay. King Charles, King Charles Bane. He liked the way he could say his surname, Bane, arms outstretched and proclaiming, okay everyone, he said, a meaningless utterance with no other purpose than to announce that he was there in charge. The education was about to commence. All eyes on me, if you please, for I am present.
class client and bums shifted, as he called the register. He ticked off their names here, here, absent here, moved down the list, adrenaline beginning to ebb now to adjust. He was teaching. He was a teacher. It is raining. Yvonne is on Buchanan Street. Yvonne, sodden, coming towards you on crowded Buchanan Street. Baby, you say. She won't look at you. Yvonne. Yvonne, it's me. Baby. She still won't look at you. Her wedding dress clings to her legs, face dripping with rain as though she is melting. She is melting. The giant video screen above Buchanan Street shows cruises, shoes, home furnishings. She is coming towards you. She is crying. You will console her. You will protect. This was your pledge that you would protect her all of her life. Open your arms now and feel her body beside yours again. It's warmth and heartbeat and life. She walks right through you. She is gone. She is gone. She is gone. Thank you. <laughs> Alan's always a particularly hard act to follow, but um, he's been teaching us in the uh, in the world of literary fiction in Scotland how to how to do voices. So um, um, I've been I've been experimenting with the sort of Alan Bizet mode of address recently. Although, well, you'll see for yourself. Um, <laughs> Menage is uh, is the third book in a sort of trilogy, which is kind of nice because Menage being Menage a trois and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, um, I was always kind of fascinated by this thing. I, I was once an art student and uh, the kind of birth of the kind of postmodern era where everyone had given up conventional materials and decided to make art out of filming ashtrays or in fact selling ashtrays. Damien Hirst uh, sold an ashtray for 850 pounds once. I think he did a lot of animals as well, stuffed, etc. Um, Tracy Emin, yeah, I think we all know about her. Um, I think of her as the Jade Goody of the art world. Um, <laughs> Anyway, the book is kind of set in this time, and I like the idea of this thing that Marcel Duchamp said, which we all took terribly seriously in the 90s, which was that you should make your life into an artwork. And also was interested in the idea that when you look at the lives of artists, generally one person gets kind of heralded as the artist, but it, it sometimes takes more than one person to really make the art, and that sometimes the other people are not really documented in what becomes the kind of iconic image of that artist's work. So uh, therefore the idea was born of... Uh, Three people who are completely interdependent, utterly uh, sort of slaves to each other because they, they sort of fill in each other's inadequacies, who make art together, try to turn their lives into an artwork. Um, these are these are kids in their in their twenties. Um, they're they're uh, it's this being in the nineties. They're they're influenced by the, the slacker ethos, grunge, uh, living in sort of deliberate squalor. Um, going to goldsmiths in London, being peers of Hearst and Emin and all this kind of stuff. So we have these three characters. Um, this chap called Saul. 
um, who's a little older, and he's a kind of uh, Oscar Wildean character, a bit of a Nietzschean nihilist. He's the guy with the funny voice. Um, there's there's his former sort of um, his his femme de menage, if you like, Owen, who's a kind of understudy of Saul, who's basically uh, endured Saul's uh, incredibly uh, well, as I say, nihilistic way of life for many years, and basically cleans up after him. And uh, they're they're running out of money, basically, so they have to get someone else to join them to throw some capital into the, the, the uh, situation. So a young, affluent art student called Dot turns up. And uh, the story basically uh, follows the complex interactions of their different love relations and how they end up turning that into artwork, which is quite scandalous. So there's lovely stuff at the start where they're all quite innocent and no one's actually had sex yet, which is where I'm reading from at this point. Because we were not competing for her affections, not each trying to seduce her, due to our vow of amorous abstinence, because neither Saul nor I was trying to win her over to one side, the simplest, most banal of daily tasks crackled with the electric static of sublimated desire. We found an old pot of paint in the street and danced around as we painted the kitchen bright orange. She made up names for us both. I was called O, as in O, which often came out, uh-oh. And she called him Zarathustra after the Nietzsche he was trying to teach her. Typically of an evening, they would be in his room watching TV, cuddled up together under the duvet, laughing at the so-called intellectuals on Newsnight, debating for the nth time Francis Fukuyama's predicted victory of Western capitalism. The end of history, and this is as good as it gets, and the biggest shopping mall in the world has just opened. And I would pine to be in there with them as I sensed if I missed out on a single moment and she would be more drawn to him, but I fought the impulse to possess. The desire to kiss her was at times unbearable. I saw it on Saul's face too, but our gentleman's agreement kept us from crossing that line. She was neither mine nor his. Every time she hugged one of us, she would hug the other. We were as chaste as children, living without ownership or envy. Was this what life was like a hundred years ago when lovers had chaperones? My God, I thought then, if I never have sex again, if I could just live like this in this constant repression of the urge in which it grows and finds its way out, blossoming not in acts of selfish possessiveness, but in generosity to two, not one. If I could live like this forever, seeing the struggle in Saul's face to resist possessing her, to not betray me. The way she became then in those weeks, some subtle liberation growing within her. She walked around in various states of un and redressing completely without embarrassment. She would pee with the door open and read his books, legs tucked to her knees on the sofa with no panties on, giving us ample display of her peach-like buttocks. She said coming off the antidepressants made her feel herself again. Saul thought it at times hilarious, a habit of the decadent aristocracy. The aristocracy always parade around half-naked, he said. My God, the Duchess is alive and living in my living room. You may not believe what follows, but it is as factually true as that old cliché that declares joy harder to document than conflict. All our great narratives are of conflict, and so joy goes undocumented, and it is said that by documenting joy we diminish and destroy it. But we find the opposite to be true. Our happiness was absolutely a product of our omnipresent camera. She would point it at me in the midst of, what, sorting out my socks, and say, action! 
and suddenly this banal chore turned into a performance. I would pull them on slowly as if I were Marlena Dietrich with silk stockings. We said, cut, a lot. It became our way of saying, this is boring, let's do something else. Saul no longer moaned or bitched to me because he did not want to be caught in such a mood on camera. He woke and dressed before I even rose, as if ready for his close-up, Mr. DeMille. Dot bought a hundred pounds worth of blank videotapes and we got through half of them in a week. It even changed the world around us. One day we walked down Old Street arm in arm, all three, and because she held the camera at arm's length, filming us, no one who passed said a thing. Some scary proles even jumped in our way, all smiles and waved to the lens, asking, "'It's for the telly, darling?' Our shadows reached long into the streets on those October evenings as we searched for things to film. We always ended up kicking about in the warehouse off Old Street, the door long since booted in, brainstorming. Dot suggested we run around naked. Cut, Saul shouted. Two performance art. The whole nudity, nudity is truth thing is a modernist fallacy. <laughs> I propose that we dance around to music. Cut, he called out. It's been done before by that annoying socialist artist girl who danced in a shopping mall in Peckham. And besides, all the MTV pop videos had pop bands dancing around in warehouses years ago. No matter what ideas Dot and I came up with, he found reasons to abandon them. God, it's no use. Stop trying to be interesting, he insisted. You cannot compete with advertising. The only way to strike profundity is to aim one's sights at the utterly banal and to miss completely. When he said things like that, Dot shouted, Stop! I have to record this! But by the time she got her camera ready, he'd lost momentum and couldn't pick up the thread again. Everything had been done before, he said. Even the saying of it had been said before. I started the sense we'd get nothing done and we were damaging her chance of an art degree. She had yet to learn that Saul's encyclopedic knowledge could be crippling. If it were not so, then why would he still be here with two wannabes at age, what, 29, 30, hanging out in disused warehouses? The only way to be a true nihilist without being a hypocrite, is to do absolutely nothing, he often said. But when the camera was turned off, we felt rather melancholy. As per a typical night, I shoplifted pot noodles on the way home and we added ketchup and chili pepper to make up for the lack of sustenance by way of stimulation. Then we degreased it with boxes of sherry. Oh, oh, she said to me, I'll never make art at this, at this rate, I'm rubbish. Saul, suitably listened, declared the answer was not to think of something arty to film, but to live more dangerously. He started on one of his rants about the Duchess. She could not be contained, restrained. Her blood itself was in rebellion against the constriction of her veins. Likewise her gut, bladder and cunt. Every orifice pissing in the face of convention. <laughs> Dot was perplexed. Who? Where? So I explained that Dot's great muse was from New York. In the 1920s, and was the mistress of Duchamp, of most of the Surrealists, in fact. Nonsense, Saul shouted. She was Surrealism itself. Walking down Fifth Avenue wearing nothing but a trash can, a Chinese fan hanging from her anus. <laughs> Did you know, he whispered drunkly, her talents at disguise were so accomplished. She could go undetected, even among her closest friends. She dressed as a man sporting a fulsome moustache and wore a cucumber in her pants. She seduced rich men with homosexual tendencies, then blackmailed them just for the hell of it. 
No way he dot-shed it by that. But she was transfixed. That's nothing. She was richer than Chrysler, some say, but lived in a hovel in Greenwich Village. She married an Austrian count and had him butchered two days after the wedding. But that's horrible. Absolutely. She stole fur coats from Macy's and handed them out to passing tramps. She was filling the streets with mink. She grew vegetables and human excrement and lived on nothing but champagne and opium. I have the book here somewhere. If I can ever find it, I'll loan it to you. Dot was enraptured. I left them alone so Paul could recount more of the gory decadence. In that moment, truth be told, I felt a little jealous for the sense of wonder she'd just discovered. From now on, she would wake each day, her head bursting with surrealism and song. Back in my room, as I lay back, as if in deja vu, I knew what would happen next. And sure enough, it did. I heard the stereo start up, then those ridiculous keyboards that sounded like a kiddie's toy version of Duran Duran meets a church organ. Disparu by the Duchamps. J'ai disparu, tu as disparu. Our secret album, and he was sharing it with her. I fought a small urge of jealousy, then conquered it, telling myself that yes, through her, I was already in many ways reliving my conversion to the wondrous ways of Saul. I smiled to myself as the synthesizers wangled and the backwards audio samples of cats meowing and buildings exploding got louder and a she-man's voice rose to an epic operatic false note. News avant disparu. Thank you. I think both these gentlemen could easily perform on the fringe better than many, <laughs> many performers. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, Alan, you mentioned before you were reading that this had been uh, a hard book to get out. Why was that? Um, well, I just went further into this guy than I think I have with the previous characters. Uh, I was just challenging myself a lot more, I think. I mean, in terms of the stuff that's happening on the page, um, the, the, the style, the voice, the length. Um, but also I thought that um, the, more, the more I wrote about this guy, the more layers started to be peeled away. I mean, it was meant to be a kind of romp, and in some ways it is. Um, it's got all the elements of a sex farce. You know, if you like confessions of a window cleaner, <laughs> it's like this with angst. Um, so I, I wanted to journey kind of uh, as far into that guy as I could go, so it was, by the time, you get to the end of it, you're kind of, uh, you know, in the void, really. There's a lot of fun to be had in the way to the void. That could be a... <laughs> it sounds like another movie, actually. A motto for life, really. <laughs> a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. <laughs> to the void. Funny thing happened on the way to the void today, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Trip diver and anarchist. Um, yeah, so that, that, those are some of the reasons why I think it's, it was just... Um, uh, in, t in terms of form, it was harder. I was pushing myself further in terms of... Uh, I don't know, the psycho I wanted the psychology to feel as real as it could. Just a little gap why, <laughs> while the Ryanair comes to the ground with a crash, See, this we is hope. the difference between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Because you do readings in Glasgow, somewhere like the Arches, and you can feel the rumbling of the trains overhead. Edinburgh, you get jets. <laughs> and in Falkirk? Uh, this is the, the screaming of the populace. <laughs> no. Whoa. Because they it's can't, all right because for me to slag it off. 
Falkirk's personality of the year. I've got a diplomatic role here. <laughs> so that's what this book's about. Right, moving swiftly on to you. And, um, sure. Did you find this book difficult, particularly? Um, well, because uh, I was involved in that whole uh, incredibly ridiculous, over-the-top, uh, nihilistic art set, um, I kind of knew so much about the way it worked anyway. And um, there's actually nine artworks in the book, uh, which, which, uh, which I made myself. And some of them were incomplete works that I'd never finished off when I was an art student myself, and ones that I would love to have done. Um, for example, one of the final artworks is uh, Dot going around um, an art gallery and, uh, and slapping people in the face while video recording them. Um, You've been tangoed. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was probably about the same time as tango, actually, yeah. Um, so, uh, really, the, I felt that there was like a wealth of stuff that I knew mm. about that, that, that era. And also, that it better be written quick um, before that time's forgotten. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm, I am Generation X, and we did go through a kind of really quite intense um, negativity in that time. And young people seem much more positive now, and, and older people are more positive. So Generation X is this kind of black, well, back to the void again, mm. this sort of dark, nihilistic era. You know, our, our greatest icon uh, blew his brains out in 1994, and uh, we all moaned that, oh, Kurt Cobain only made page 12 in The Guardian. And we're like, yeah, but, we're anti-establishment. Why should we even want him to be in the Guardian <laughs> in the first place? Um, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of an anthem for Generation X in, in many ways. So. Um, which kind of raises the issue about experience uh, as, as against um, imagination. I mean, you were a, an English teacher at some point, weren't you, Alan? Um, how much is what goes on here based on your own experience? <laughs> and how much on your imagination? What did you do in the cupboard? I've not had that question yet. <laughs> oh. Well, actually, the bits when he's in the class, uh, the bits when he's in the class are probably the closest to me, um, because I liked that. I liked being in front of a class. It was great. It's kind of teaching is seventy percent theatre, and thirty percent crushing bureaucracy, <laughs> um, and that's the thirty percent that I left teaching because of really. Um, but there's no feeling like it being in front of a class and, and taking them somewhere, you know. Um, so I felt like that. You know, that, the kind of um, conductor. And when he's shopping, because he likes to get dressed up. And, and I do as well. Um, probably kind of, just as well. You're kind of not coming to the sex uh, aspect, though. Yeah, that's, <laughs> what, that's what you wanted to ask about, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, I've never had sex, so I had to ask so it's imagination, so people then. about it. It's very, it's very noisy and, and uh, messy, apparently. Um, it sounded fascinating. Uh, so I wrote a book in order, to, they say this, you know, in order to get closer to the experience of other people. That's why I wrote the book, to find out what it was like <laughs> to have sex, deflect, deflect. I, I kind of guess that possibly wasn't the angle you were coming from, you. Um, well, no, I've written three books which involve quite a lot of sex and I'm still, no, still none the wiser, really. Um, although this is probably the one in which people actually do have something that's quite gratifying because I was getting a bit of reputation as someone who was, you know, good at writing bad sex. So I thought maybe it would be better to be bad at writing good sex. Or even good at writing good sex. Or good at writing good yeah. sex, yeah. This is the thing about writing sex scenes. I realised this as I was writing this book, because my previous two novels, unlike Ewan's, are quite blushing about sex. And in Boy Racers, the main character, Alvin, who's, who's a wee virgin, um, at the moment he loses his virginity. They're in, they're in the woods with a girl he quite fancies and they're taking off their clothes 
and then there's a blank page, and then they're putting their clothes back on again. <laughs> and I thought, oh, we don't have the right to look. And obviously I hadn't had it, so I didn't know how to, how to write it. But in this one, I thought, no, let's look. So um, your blank page is a bit like the, the cinematic pan out of window. Yeah, no. yeah, a little bit. An airplane goes past. Pretty much. It's like that bit in Reservoir Dogs when they, they cut the guy's ear off and then the camera just pans away and everything's off screen. But this one, I did look and I realised as I was writing it, if you write a sex scene that people think is, is badly written or funny or embarrassing, that's what they'll think you're like in bed. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody's going to read, you know, his throbbing member and go, oh yeah, ooh, I want to get stuck into him. You know, if it's throbbing, you should probably take it to the doctors. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you ever felt that responsibility. And also on the front, A.L. Kennedy says, an insane hallucinatory mosaic of sexual dysfunction, pathos, humour and narrative energy. And I thought, wow, A.L. Kennedy said that about my book. And then I realised the word sexual dysfunction. <laughs> I run a book that's got my name on it. <laughs> so I think you're all right. But do you, how do you, I mean, you've written about sex a lot more than me, how do you? Yeah, and, and um, sexual dysfunction, which is actually more fun uh, to write about than sexual success, which is, uh, which is uh, pretty embarrassing to, to write about and read. Also, you know, when you're reading pornography, there's only so many words that... I always get caught up in the, in the words people use to describe bits of the body. And you can get it, it so wrong. There's only so many times you can describe a certain member before you feel kind of repetitious, then you're going to the thesaurus for, <laughs> like, and you can keep using throb. starts getting gynecological. Um, mm -hmm. So, no, but the whole point of writing sex in, in literary, in fine literary books, I suppose, is it's got to come from the characters, and I mm -hmm. guess the definition of porn would be that it's, that you, you, your, your characters are basically, they're the plumber and the horny housewife. We've got to get the one and a half minute of set up in there before we can get to the 45 minutes of hardcore. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, we're probably the other way around, 45 minutes of hardcore life uh, with one minute of um, sex. Mm -hmm. Well, that's even more about sex than I, than I expected <laughs> I was going to get. Thank you so much for that. Um, you mentioned the cinema, and that was actually that segues beautifully into my next question, because you've obviously had experience, you and as a, mm -hmm. as a filmmaker, uh, and you, Alan, as a, as a playwright. So I was just mm -hmm. wondering the extent to which those different uh, forms of writing or forms of artistic expression, whatever, uh, kind of impact on your uh, novel writing. Well, I think the whole kind of media-saturated culture impacts on the way both of us write. Mm -hmm. it's, I think that's why we're a we are a generation of new writers who have who, um, taken on board the fact that, that, that images affect the way we behave all the time. Um, you know, even in Alan's uh, you know, section there about the wife, she's um, the fantasy of the wife. There's images advertising stuff behind as she walks down Buchanan Street. And that's certainly... I think I'm really concerned with in Menage and the other books as well, but more so in Menage in as much as these people are actually filming every damn thing that they do all the time and they feel depressed that if they can't live in an exciting enough way for it to be worthy of documenting, which is a kind of void that we've <coughs> got ourselves into, void, the void again I'm afraid, in the media saturated culture in which things only seem to have value if they're, if they're worth representing. Um, so I'm certainly... Uh, Obsessed really with with including the frame this this thing in reality rather than excluding it I think previous generation maybe of realist writers were very scared of, of the screen of the video camera of the idea of a mediated life 
um, and I think uh, certainly I've pushed the focus towards uh, what would life, you know, showing what life is is uh, is like when 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 everything you do is in some way already documented, filmed, mediated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was the question how do films and other media in general influence the writing or the ones that I've written? Uh, probably the latter. Okay. Well, I, I hadn't written a play by the time I'd finished this. I wrote, started writing the plays as a reaction to the experience of this book because both Adam Spark, my last book, and this one, I was working them for four years each, um, which is not always four years of solid concentrated work, but you know, you, you have to make a living in, in between. Um, so the books are kind of exhausting, and they're a, they're a stamina test, essentially, um, and they take a lot out of you. Whereas plays kind of, you know, happily zip along, because, well, first of all, they're shorter. The drama's much more compact. You don't have uh, a narrative voice to worry about. It's purely dialogue. So that's where the plays just came kind of flying out of me. I mean, the, I had a play on The Ching Room, which was on, it did, it did well, on in Glasgow, and, Traverse, it was my first produced play, and um, I wrote it in six hours, and it just, you know, the, the one woman show was kind of the same, and I thought, oh, this is great, you know, it's, it's complete in six hours, rather than four years, and two months later it's on stage and there's little pretend people talking. Um, <laughs> But I, I suppose that the, the experience of writing them, they do kind of feed into each other. I mean, the one woman show, Charlie, from this, who's the, the main character, makes an appearance. It's a dramatic monologue written uh, for a female part, which I performed myself. And these boots, these are my Moira boots. Um, and he, he makes a cameo halfway through. So those books were talking to each other. I wanted to write a female part, I think, because I'd spent four years inside the head of a very, inside the head of a, a male predator. And, um, but even the experience of writing them, because when I was writing these, I didn't use stage directions. You know, the character's name, dialogue, brackets, crosses the stage and picks up a spoon. Um, it was more just kind of like, there's bits in the book where it goes like, uh, like that, you know, and the, the narrative breaks down entirely and it's just voices kind of appearing on the page. That's how I wrote the plays. So I, I did learn how to write plays in a, a, a way that felt more like prose, so it wasn't too hard a jump, and because it, it feels very stagey if you're writing, you know, uh, Paul. So you and what are you doing now? Brackets. You and picks up glass. Well, I'm working on this, you know. Bissett brackets scratches face. <laughs> um, yeah, that just it's too jerky. So that, yeah, they, they, they do feed into each other, they do talk to each other. But you, you mentioned the, the lack of narrative voice. I guess in the, in the case of a play, the narrative, such as it is, comes through the dialogue. But Ewan, with uh, the, the sort of artworks that you're using in, in the book that you referred to, that there is a kind of lack of narrative, or a different kind of narrative, if you like. I and mean, we talk about narrative a bit, how that's different in, uh, to, to what you're actually doing in the book, in terms of telling a story. Hmm, I'm not quite sure I know what you mean there, but um, I'm I've told a story by splitting it up into, into, into different sections. This is where it gets a bit technical. But it's a book told in nine sections, nine different artworks, and each um, section of the book starts off with, with an image, an art image, and then with a bit of art criticism about it. There's an image, there's a bit of art criticism, which is written in this kind of uh, slightly turgid sense, uh, you know, way that, that art criticism is written these days. You know, everything's 
deconstructing something or it's challenging the meaning of such and such. And as you go through the book, it turns out that Owen, one of the characters um, who's in, in the story, is the art critic himself. <laughs> what he's doing is actually trying to obfuscate and, and cover up um, the reality of the life that he had with these two other people. He's got to make a decision as to whether he includes himself in the frame, in, in the text itself. Um, so um, I've got art speak in there. I've got like past tense talking about the story and then I've got the contemporary life of these characters when they meet up again. But um, I was interested in the idea that you can have a non-communicative form as part of the form itself. Turgid art speak could actually, through the little gaps in between what's said describing these artworks. Some of these artworks are things like a woman walks for an hour with her eyes closed holding a camera at her face. And uh, we see from the art speak that you know, this work has been taken on board by um, and plagiarised by, by a heavy metal band and by um, a rape crisis centre and by the, it's, it's polarised views, um, Islamic people are offended by it, such and such. There's all this, these many interpretations of what it might mean and I'm never telling you what it does mean. Um, I'm taking you into this contemporary art speak where the only thing an artwork is supposed to mean is a multitude of things. So, anyway, that seems rather... Well, yeah, I suppose what I'm getting at is that, that um, to some extent when you write a story Everything is narrative, as you say, including mm. the critical work, the, the photographs that you've got in there, the, the um, replicas of the, of the videos and so on. Mm. So I suppose the question really is the extent to which you, you kind of see that as being a, everything as a story or whether you're just putting these various different things down and they come, come as a story sort of after the event. Yeah, well, um, well, because we kind of find out what happened at the end of the story right at the start, it's, the book's really a narrative of how things happen. Or happened. even kind of anti-narrative to some extent, yeah. Mm, well, I mean, it's a, it's a right ripping read though, nonetheless. Um, certainly wasn't <laughs> suggesting it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's interesting to try to construct other ways of doing stories. It's, yeah. it's, it's a non-linear narrative, but it's like three different trajectories all heading towards the same ending that you already know, but you're, you want to find out how this happened, basically. Mm. So. It, playing with narrative form, but yeah, it, every section tells a little story in itself, which again is something I got from script writing, where every scene has to have beginning, middle and end, and the overarching thing has to have beginning, <coughs> middle and end. And I suppose, Alan, to some extent, with yours, there, there's a question of trying to find out what happens at the end, because the title itself, you know, is obviously a big there's clue in that respect. A clue, <laughs> yes, if one wanted to That's what It gets gored by a giant stiletto. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, have you got any thoughts on kind of narrative and how everything can be turned towards narrative purposes and and what you do? Well, I suppose every choice you make is on behalf of the narrative. I mean, uh, books should, you know, they should have pace. Uh, well, you don't want to be too prescriptive about these things. Moby Dick doesn't have pace, you know. It doesn't even have whales, to be quite honest. <laughs> turns up in the last chapter. You've read 700 pages to get, I thought it was going to be like Jaws. <laughs> um, actually, Jaws is a good case in point. It's my favourite movie. And um, that is the perfect film, I think. Because not only is it thrilling as hell and scary and satisfies all the requirements of a blockbuster, you can watch it at the age of eight, you can watch it at the age of 80, and you'll still be completely uh, compulsed by it. But there's so many grace notes, and there's so much truth in the acting, and, and if you've seen it as many times as I have, the way that the shots are framed, and 
the way that Spielberg would just sort of, for no reason, just pan out towards the sea and let you look at it for five seconds. So there, that there's the kind of Moby Dick moments where you're supposed to think of the immensity and yeah. lies beneath or something. Yeah, yeah, Christmas, yeah. I guess. and yeah. The, the way that he suggests shark without showing the shark until mm. two thirds of the way through the movie, you know, it's, it's crafted. And that takes art. That, that's where the art comes in. Um, and I, I always wanted to write the kind of book that you read quickly. Whenever people tell me they've read my book really quickly, there's, there's no feeling in the way it's like, that means you were into it, yes. But you can put all sorts of bells and whistles along the way so it's not just formulaic genre thriller. You know, that's, and I also think that there's something about the, the style that uh, a book is written in, the, the way that the eye travels across the page, how you control the speed that the reader experiences at. You can, you can make them read faster, you can make them read slower, you can put words here and all that, that actually makes you think like the character. It's not just a matter of reading a story about a character, but if you can kind of immerse yourself in them and you need to use every trick in the book, you've got to make a reader do that. But, you know, if they're fighting their way through it, then, you know, you've failed. That's right. uh, we're going to get you guys in any second now. Just while you're thinking about questions, let me ask one uh, last <coughs> question to our two authors and just very quick answers. Uh, Ewan, what are you working on next? Um, because I love this idea of like looking at contemporary society and the way that we live, in the now, I'm writing a collection of short stories called Tales from the Mall, which is 12 different people, 12 different shopping malls. Actually, interestingly enough, I was thinking 12 different people, 12 different retail outlets. Then <laughs> um, I thought, well, I might get into litigation, you know, because, you know, I had a fantastic story called Gap. Um, and then I thought, well, Boots didn't quite work for me. Um, Boy, you could have fun with a title like Boots. Come Boots, on. I could. You <laughs> I think, so, so I think you, you already have. have. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Alan, what are you doing? Sorry to interrupt you. Sweetly, sure. um, uh, well, I'm writing another novel, which is the uh, well, it's the sequel to Boy Racers, basically. But I want to write it in such a way that people who have never read Boy Racers can read it as a standalone book. And then after that's done, I'm chucking myself into theatre for a bit. I'm going to just do uh, write and perform, I think, for a year. Um, yeah, I, that's. That's the way ahead. That's enough, I would think. Yeah. Right, mm. great. Thanks for me. Uh, who would like to join the debate or even start the debate? Don't be shy. They're quite nice, really. Very nice. Lady at the front. We've got a mic. Yep. Hi. It's a question for Alan, actually, about the... A bit closer, maybe. Yeah. Sorry. About the... Uh, about Boy Racers. Mm -hmm. You know, the music, and it really inspired me. It was that kind of idea about moments of your life. I yeah. just wondered how much of that was deliberate or how much of that was just completely natural that, you know, your kind of love of music, if that was... Um, well, I suppose that comes back to what we were talking about earlier, the way that film just inevitably informs what you do. I mean, when I was growing up, I was a teenager, let me see. I became a teenager in 1987 and ended my teenage years in 1994. And when I was a student, it was 93 to 97, so it was a perfect span of Britpop. Um, starts with Swede's first album, ends with Be Here Now by Oasis, um, pretty much. And, well, do you know what, even the fact that I answered the question like that shows that you kind of mark off your years in terms of the music that was out that year. Uh, you and your mates kind of bond over certain films and uh, it becomes a wee language between you. And for most men my age, it's Star Wars. You know, that you, you, there's, it's inescapable. Um, and so you have to write about the characters as realistically as you can, so inevitably that just becomes part of their world. So when I was writing Boy Racers, I wanted to interrupt the narrative just with a random film quote, and then the narrative carries on, just to show how much it's part of the, 
fabric of their life. You know, I can go back to Falkirk and still communicate with my mates and quotes from Beverly Hills Cop and Enter the Dragon <laughs> and Police Academy, you know? It's like, that's how we greet each other. Ah, Mahoney. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but that's just, that's the stuff we were taking in. Yeah. You know, we weren't, we weren't reading Proust. Um, and I think that, uh, and to a certain extent, Charlie is, is of that age. So that's why you get sort of uh, big lists of stuff. There's, there's one, a couple of pages where it's just lists of things. Oh, there's the bit where the text makes the shape of a vagina. It's, what, page, um, what page is that? Uh, page... <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing horny about it, I can assure you. Um, and there's bits where it's kind of just lists of albums and, and, and music. And then occasionally a voice interrupts it saying, you know, let me in. It's kind of him trapped by culture, really. Yeah, those are the same kind of things that you were talking about mm. with... Uh, yeah, and yeah. yeah um, <coughs> within this book, there's there's a kind of cult of the really obscure. So so Salt Sol has has collections of albums which in, involve uh, kind of experimental Japanese noise terror, Stockhausen, ABBA, <laughs> um, Funkadelic, you know, and uh, the uh, William Shatner sings the blues. Because <laughs> um, there was this kind of ethos um, of, of anti-consumerism at the heart of the Generation X thing. So if you bought an album that was that was you know, popular. It was this terrible thing where, where we would get into stuff and then other people would like it, so we'd have to start hating it. <laughs> Which is kind of on I a hiding. I never experienced that. We were, we were listening to U2 and <laughs> the Eagles and stuff like that, you know? No, we had a ban on U2, although we all, se oh, we all secretly liked U2. I'm going to see them tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> going to see them tomorrow. Would someone else like to uh, ask a question? Yep, by the back. Keep your hand up so she can see it. I don't know if she's like, there. I look at you and you both seem so young and I'm quite old and I'm sort of really interested in thinking about how far your books are sort of for me. I mean, you've talked about a lot of very specific cultural references and I just wondered if you, do you care? Perhaps you don't care. Um, do, you, do, you, do you feel you're writing for your generation or are you writing for everyone? Um, I think it might be hard for people who are a bit older to, to sort of get into what I'm talking about. One of the things that, that people find, well, what I sometimes see as a misreading or, or a problem is that generally I'm talking about quite trivial things, which may, in fact, they look even more trivial in retrospect and a whole generation obsessed with the, the cultural products that they consume and making a life for yourself, being a bit of a kind of a, a snob on, 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 on exactly what constitutes what you should be into. And maybe the baby boomer generation would look at us and go, oh, well, it's dead simple. You've got Janis Joplin, you've got Hendrix. What's your bloody problem? You know, and young people probably, um, I think to answer your question, I'd, I'm probably a bit hemmed in on being a Gen Xer and documenting that um, time frame, but I, I feel it's kind of my duty to to continue to do that because there is something culturally specific that 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 um, we don't have very many people that are doing that. I think Douglas Copeland kind of started that off. Yeah, I'm losing faith in him, I'm afraid. We've got Michelle Welbeck as well, who, who kind of talks about the crisis and the condition of Gen X. Um, so. Um, uh, Do you want to briefly talk about that, Alan? Uh, yeah, while sure. Mike um, comes to the <coughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I'm consciously writing for a particular age group. It's just that I was very young when I wrote Boy Racers. I was I think it was 23 when I started writing it. So um, it naturally feels like a young person's book. Um, I'm 33 now, 
So this book, it's more universal stuff. I'm writing about sex and divorce and career and, and stuff like that. There just happens to be a lot of pop culture quiz and bang around it. But th at the heart of it, it's stuff that you'll get. Okay, um, thanks. Uh, just on that, you know, it, if you've had sex. It's probably the whole culture, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's this thing that, that comes up again and again and again in high literary criticism, which is universal, the universal this and the universal that. I think I probably did too much cultural theory, Marxist cultural theory, when I was at, at college to be able to accept that there's a universal anything other than global capitalism itself. You know, I think universal, I think of global shopping malls. I don't think about something good when I, when I hear the word universal universal subjectivity. It's, it's always something I've grappled with, so I'm more interested in, in the specifics of a given time, the way we live at a specific time. But what I was going to say... Yeah, you're on. Just keep it close. What I was going to say in relation to... Actually, you, you, um, you sort of answered what I was going to ask, but when you write about relationships and, and sexual relationships or emotional relationships, do you not think that your characters are, are larger than just uh, us, the products they consume? That there is something you are trying to grapple with in terms of relating. Mm. That it, it doesn't it doesn't matter how old you are that you can that you would be able to relate to it. Mm. Otherwise, yeah, it, it sounds like you're saying that if you're not of a Gen X, if you're not Gen X, then you're not going to get my book. I'm I not th sure I think that. That's that the point. I think you're doing yourself a little disservice mm -hmm. by. Um, by talking about the, the you know the culture that the characters consume and all that you know, um, you're very very good at relationships. You're very good at what goes on between people who are attracted to each other and, and writing them at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask. Um, but no, I mean there's there's real heart and soul in there. It's it's not just culture. Well, I think I'm I'm trying to get to some kind of. Uh, idea of, well, some grappling with the problems we face when, when we're surrounded by things that tell us how to live all the time. I think I'm trying to sort of undo a lot of the conditioning that we, that we have to get into some core, I'm contradicting myself, core, core values of human interaction. We've got to sort of undo all the sort of stuff that surrounds us. I mean, I walk into to Sainsbury's uh, or you know, anywhere that's got a stack of newspapers or magazines and I'm mortified at how much we've forgotten about feminism in the 60s and all this kind of stuff. The, the kind of binge and purge culture of women's magazines, you know, 40 tips on losing weight, 10 diets, how to be more sexy in bed, um, you know, and then these images of before and after, you know, fat slim, putting on more weight, having a bit more weight around your thighs is in this month and then next week it's, you know, month it's off again. All this kind of garbage, it just makes me mad. I do kind of want to get rid of that in some way, but to do that, I have to address it. When your characters are having sex with each other, that's when the truth comes out. There's some really beautiful moments, I think, in both Swung and this book, when all of that stuff is stripped away and you do get to the heart of it, and those characters are just sharing a kind of joy and, and communion, really. So you wouldn't be able to do all that other stuff were it not for the, that kind of pulse at the centre of it. Is that? Yeah, but you know, also, also there is, you know, maybe alienated sexual encounters as well, where people don't quite get there. Or you know, there's a scene in Swang, for example, where the most beautiful experience they have is a couple, a man watching his partner having se having sex with another couple through two sheets of glass, and this is the most. He's, he says, "I've never felt so close to anyone in my life." Um, so, I'm willing to accept that, that there are rather 
strange, cold, and rather fucked up ways that we do actually relate to each other. Mm. That, that, that I don't really want to posit sex as an answer, a kind mm. of a, a truth to to okay. reality. Although I do get there sometimes, and usually by accident, um, <laughs> uh, on and off the page. <laughs> <laughs> and on on that note, uh, I'm afraid we've reached the end of our hour. Um, I'm sure that the authors will be very happy to continue talking to you in the main bookshop uh, where they'll be signing books. Uh, I'm tasked to inform you that shortly the Spiegel tent, in fact even now, the Spiegel tent will provide you with any form of liquid requirement, refreshment you should require, or requirement you should refresh. Um, we will head towards the, uh, the main bookshop. If you could let us out first before you stampede, that would be appreciated. And all I have to do now is to thank very much Alan Bissett and Ewan Morrison. Thank you.